welcome to the podcast, The Common Bridge with Richard Helpy. Rich is a successful entrepreneur in the technology, health, and finance space. He and his wife, Leslie, are also philanthropists with interest in civic and artistic endeavors, but with a primary focus on medically and educationally underserved children. My name is Brian Kruger, and from time to time, I'll be the moderator and host of this podcast. Welcome to The Common Bridge. We have a very, very special guest today. We've been hearing a lot about the healthcare system, how our doctors, our hospitals are reacting, the extraordinary heroic measures that people on the front lines of healthcare are dealing with during this enormous crisis. Our guest on the Common Bridge this morning is Brian Peters. Brian is the chief executive of the Michigan Health and Hospital Association, which is one of the largest state hospital associations. Uh, he has been with the MHA for 29 years. He has come up through the ranks. He has worked with both urban and rural hospitals. He serves in a national capacity with the American Hospital Association. He has insight to the payer world and currently serves on the executive committee of Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan. Uh, he has also been appointed by Michigan's Governor Whitmer to serve on the Michigan Census Complete Count Committee. He is a fundraising executive with many, many very worthy charities. Um, his entire bio uh, will be on uh, our website as well, richardhelpy.com. Uh, Brian's academic preparation, he has a master's degree in health services administration from the University of Michigan, a bachelor's degree in business administration by uh, from Michigan State University, and he's also completed an executive fellowship for National Center for Healthcare Leadership He's completed the Health Executives Development Program at Cornell University. He's studied the British healthcare system with the King's Fund in London. And although Brian's master's is from the University of Michigan and his bachelor's is from Michigan State, I have it on very good authority that when football season comes along, he's wearing the scarlet and gray of Ohio State University. Brian, welcome to the Common Bridge. Rich, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be with you. And, and now that you mentioned my... Uh, affinity for the Buckeyes, uh, you know, probably uh, your listeners won't take anything I, I have to say with uh, any degree of seriousness, but hey, that's okay. There's there's a real risk of that, Brian, but that's why I made it clear where you attended class, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Appreciate it. And, and, and given recent results, I think your football loyalties are probably in the right place, so. I'm, I'm just hopeful that we have a football season uh, this fall. Well, there's no one better to be able to look forward and say whether that could uh, happen or not. Brian, you've been in some very, very interesting meetings of late. Uh, the governor, the congressional delegation, health system heads. Uh, I believe these may even be daily. I know you can't say everything that's going on, but what are you able to tell us about those meetings? Well, you're right, uh, Rich. We've been uh, involved in uh, a number of discussions over the last several weeks with the folks that are making some incredibly important policy decisions. Uh, literally, when the governor was uh, contemplating the, uh, the closure of school, the closure of certain businesses, and uh, ultimately the stay home, stay safe order, 
which we've seen, of course, in, in a number of other states as well. Uh, the MHA and our member hospitals and, and health systems uh, have been very, very engaged in those conversations, providing information and insights about uh, what we need on the front lines in terms of caring for, uh, for those who are afflicted with this uh, terrible virus. And it has been uh, impressive to me uh, from the start to see the degree of bipartisanship uh, throughout this. I think that has stood out to me as someone who works in the political realm and has been uh, dismayed, as many of us are, with uh, the partisan infighting that occurs at the state and, and federal and even the local level at times. Uh, I think that has really stood out to me that, that everyone has come together and, and really tried to do the right things. That's very encouraging to hear about that cooperative stance versus what the confrontational headlines tell us. Brian, from the front lines and the partners or the members of Michigan Health and Hospital Association, they are the health systems throughout the state of Michigan. And I, as I did mention, Brian is also in contact with his peers in other states and has a national role with the American Hospital Association. What are the health systems reporting? It's, this has been a tremendous pivot to respond to coronavirus 19, but also, you know, people are still having heart attacks and getting cancer treatment. Can you characterize what's going on on the front lines of the health systems today? Absolutely, and our world has really uh, flipped upside down in an incredibly short period of time, uh, as you know. And even uh, today, uh, if you look at uh, the state of Michigan, and there are a number of hospitals who have yet to see their first COVID patient, even those hospitals have been incredibly impacted by this pandemic because what happened very early on uh, in this crisis is that every hospital in the state of Michigan, uh, either because patients were scared to come into the hospital for elective procedures or because the hospital voluntarily uh, elected to, uh, to to cease those types of procedures, or uh, ultimately when the governor issued an executive order that outlawed those types of elective procedures, it doesn't matter how they arrived at that outcome, but when they stopped those elective procedures, uh, in essence, a, an enormous part of their revenue stream stopped. And so you have this double-edged sword revenue no longer coming in. At the same time, you're confronted with these unplanned, unbudgeted expenses to ramp up for an expected surge in COVID patients. Now, that's uh, occurring in every hospital in the state of Michigan. Those who were financially insecure to begin with, for all the reasons we know about, this is enough to put them right on the brink. And we've heard loud and clear, very directly from those hospital leaders uh, over the last several weeks. And then if you look at what's happening in the city of Detroit and, and metropolitan Detroit, we know that uh, those hospitals, if they're not full at capacity already with COVID patients, they are rapidly on their way uh, to having that, that problem. And the, the real issue here, the one that we, we hear a lot of talk um, in the media about is the lack of personal protective equipment, masks and, and the like, and the lack of ventilators. And that's very true. But 
honestly, the thing that is going to become a real a crisis sooner rather than later is the lack of staff. And it's precisely because in many instances, we had a shortage of frontline caregivers to begin with. Now we have nursing staff that are contracting the virus. They're in the line of fire. And once that happens, they're out of the fight. They can no longer provide care. And so we have a real concern going forward about having enough staff to take care of these people who are increasingly coming to the hospital. That is a truly frightening piece of information, given that we are a long way from knowing what a reliable uh, drug treatment might be. And we are at best 18 months away from any type of vaccine. Brian, when you talk about the, the economic costs on the healthcare provider, and I'm loath to call our financing ways a system because it's really not a system, it's methods. But when you think about the design of the United States healthcare financing methods, were we ready for this? No. The short answer is no. And part of the reason for that is, uh, despite all of the attention on this shift from volume to value and, and looking at uh, value-based uh, purchasing models and the like, risk-based contracting, while that uh, trend is certainly real, uh, the fact remains that the vast majority of revenue uh, for our hospitals and health systems in Michigan today, and it's true around the country, still comes from doing things for patients. It's tests and procedures and surgeries and all the like. And as I mentioned, when those come to an abrupt halt, because you are attempting to clear capacity and ramp up for this expected surge of COVID patients, uh, the revenue stops. And so it's exposing a real flaw in the existing model. That's one place where we certainly were not ready. We're also finding that uh, just as we've talked a lot in recent years about uh, the issue of social determinants of health, we can see it playing out uh, loud and clear here in the state of Michigan. Why is the city of Detroit so hard hit? I think there are a number of factors, and, and we, we certainly see a population density being one of those, the presence of a, a large international hub airport uh, certainly plays a role. But underlying all of that, we have a situation where uh, existing health disparities uh, that contribute to a, a, a society's inability to fend off a virus like this one, if you have diabetes, if you have all of these other chronic issues to begin with, uh, the population is much more susceptible. That's a failure of our healthcare system uh, that I believe will certainly be addressed, or at least there will be a focus uh, on that issue coming out of this crisis. I, I am saddened to see us go through this as a nation and as a world. And sometimes it takes a crisis to identify where the splits and divisions and ill planning comes in. And so what I'm hearing you say is that hospitals and healthcare systems are doing this vital work at great economic cost 
Yet at the same time, I know that my health insurance premiums have not gone down. And does that mean that the insurance companies, and particularly the for-profit insurance companies, are being advantaged in some way by this? Are they pooling money? They're not paying out claims, yet they're continuing to collect premiums. And perhaps I'm oversimplifying that, but you have an insight uh, into this part of the design of the healthcare system. Sure, and I'll put on my uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan board hat for a moment and, and would observe that, you know, you're correct in the near term that, you know, the, the uh, payout for claims has certainly uh, been curtailed, at least on the hospital side as a result of this, uh, this pandemic. And the, the premium revenue, obviously, is, is still there. So in the short run, yes, uh, from an insurance company perspective, um, they are in good shape. However, I would say when you extend the view, what's the next shoe to drop? We see companies all over the state of Michigan that have ceased operations in some instances, They've certainly seen uh, an incredibly significant hit uh, to their bottom lines. And that's going to translate at some time very, very soon into pressure on private payers. We aren't going to be able to uh, to pay this premium any longer uh, on behalf of our, our employees. Something has to give. And so how that plays out yet to be determined, but I think it's fair to say a lot of the the health insurance companies, not simply Blue Cross, but all of the health insurance companies are looking at the, the long game here and saying, you know, if we step forward and advance all sorts of payments to providers, which we would certainly like to see happen, there's a risk that our bond rating will suffer significantly. And you know how impactful that can be in the insurance realm. Uh, in other words, we're here to be a, a health insurance company. We're here to play our role, but we're not a bank. The long and short of it is, I think in the near term, uh, they're okay. The longer term is a very different. So it sounds like it's rolling thunder through a system that was not designed to deal with this. I know you're familiar with a policy proposal I put forward take all the tax-supported methods of providing health insurance, make it one, every citizen gets it, allow a free market above and beyond that for those that want to be able to purchase additional insurance, put us on a par with the rest of the world, take away the tax advantage for employer-sponsored health care. Um, it doesn't work in today's environment, particularly the gig economy, and also open up Medicare Part D to everyone. I don't know if you if you care to comment on any of those that might be a good policy decisions, but what other policy changes might be advanced so that we're better able to cope with an event like this in the future? Well, Rich, as you and I have talked about these issues over, over the years, I think you've always been very insightful and, and frankly ahead of your time on a lot of these big picture policy issues. And, and I agree with everything you said in terms of where we're headed. And right now, while the Michigan Health and Hospital Association, the American Hospital Association, and others are not ready to embrace a Medicare for all a strategy, for example, in, in a, a political a dynamic, the reality is this crisis is really laying bare some of the 
clause in our uh, current healthcare delivery and financing system that I think we've all understood for quite some time. And every year that goes by, I think the, the political stars start to align a bit more around a real sea change. We're having this conversation a year from now, uh, it's going to look a lot different than it does today. And I really believe that um, if you simply look at demographics and the fact that the baby boomers are entering at, at rapid pace, the, uh, the Medicare ranks, you look at the explosive growth of the Medicaid program right here in the state of Michigan, uh, driven by a number of factors, certainly by uh, Medicaid expansion, the Healthy Michigan Plan in recent years. The bottom line is that uh, public payers, Medicare and Medicaid, are the majority of patients coming through the front door for most of our Michigan hospitals. That's today. That number is going to grow into the future. And you're correct, the, the private sector is changing so dramatically in so many different ways. I think that tie bar between uh, health benefits and private employment, uh, that's fraying. It's been fraying for quite some time for a number of reasons. And so, yes, I, I think we are on course to, to eventually have a, a very different conversation about how we pay for health care in this country. I will welcome that conversation, as I know you will. And in recent months, I've spent time with people on both political polls. And it's fascinating to watch ideology collide with reality. On the far left, there are people that believe we should outlaw any kind of healthcare service that doesn't come from a centralized government. I mean, literally, let's prosecute you if you pursue those healthcare options. On the far right, I've heard people say, let's eliminate all insurance. People can pay for what they can afford. None of that applied to their own families is something that they would embrace. Of course, on the far left centralized system, if you had money in your pocket and you wanted to take care of a premature infant, you know, you should be able to versus having it against the law. And on the far right, if you had a loved one stricken with a cancer, you'd want to make sure that they could get care. And that's where I believe the common bridge and educated people like yourselves can become vocal about getting a change so that we do cover everyone at some level, that we're better prepared for pandemics, and we still keep that innovation engine alive by having that private option because that's where the capacity comes from. Brian, I, I don't know if you've looked into the capacities of any of the other countries, particularly Italy, that have been stricken. And has their capacity for testing, staffing, treatment, acute care, intensive care been affected positively or negatively by their style of health insurance? Well, it's a fair question to ask, given uh, the global nature of this this crisis that we have. In other words, how can we learn from the places that have experienced the issue more acutely uh, ahead of us? And I think the jury is still out. Uh, there, there will be a day where we have the opportunity to have a deep dive and lessons learned, uh, which system lent itself better to dealing with an event like this. So I think it's a little soon to tell what, we, what we're able to understand at this point in time, quite honestly, is that 
regardless of the healthcare financing and delivery system in one country or another, or frankly, from one state to another, because there are differences state to state to some degree, that frankly, no one was prepared for this. You know, no one had the, um, the, the requisite number of testing kits to have testing up in rapid fashion for the most case. Uh, no one had all of the, uh, the, the system structures in place to identify and isolate people appropriately. No one had the personal protective equipment on a scale that was necessary to truly protect frontline caregivers from day one. I don't know that there's necessarily a silver bullet that can be identified at this time, but hopefully that is a, a lesson that we'll be able to learn very shortly. And I do concur that in this fog of war, there's a lot of misinformation and oversimplification and seizing on one statistic. And let's get through the crisis and then let's take a deep breath, prepare a chronology, and let's look at this in a sober light in terms of our capacities, in terms of our training, in terms of our staffing. So that leads me to your question a little closer to home now. Things are very dire in New York, particularly New York City. Is there something different about New York and particularly New York City that's made their situation as it is today? Well, that's certainly been front and center for us uh, as we try to learn from their experience. And you can see a number of similarities playing out here in Michigan. For example, in New York City, the Javits Center, one of their, their large convention centers in the city, uh, has been converted uh, to a field hospital working with the Army Corps of Engineers. And of course, that same phenomenon is playing out here at the TCF Center in, in downtown Detroit where we understand by uh, this time next week uh, that that field hospital will be uh, certainly in the process of accepting patients and also at the uh, suburban showplace in Novi, uh, similar field hospital development is underway. Again, the issue there is going to be staffing. And what we see in New York City is the fact that they simply don't have enough nursing staff, physicians, and others, and in fact, the hospitals and health systems there and the, the city and the state have been uh, very aggressive in their outreach to other states. We need frontline staff. Send as many volunteers as you possibly can. I think that is potentially a preview of coming attractions here in the state of Michigan as we scramble to staff up these field hospitals that, of course, are, are being established because our major hospitals are rapidly filling to capacity with COVID patients. The other thing that we have learned from New York is uh, the skilled nursing facilities are uh, very reluctant to accept uh, transfer patients from hospitals. And you can understand why, because uh, in a nursing home, you have a very vulnerable population. Uh, it can spread like wildfire, as we saw in Washington State uh, several weeks ago. And so there, there's a real concern there. We don't have our arms around that issue yet here in Michigan in terms of the hospital at the skilled nursing facility transfer issue. And so when you look at New York, 
Um, you understand the dramatic shortage of personal protective equipment. It's not necessarily anyone's fault. Uh, certainly the federal government could have at, at some point in time, uh, prior to this uh, crisis reaching our shores, uh, ensured that, that major metropolitan areas like New York, like Detroit, had adequate personal protective equipment. Certainly the state, the city could have done that. The hospitals and health systems themselves could have done that. I think we all understand why we didn't. And I think next time around, understanding the seriousness of this issue, uh, we'll do better. But there is a, a, a number of lessons we can certainly learn from places like New York City. Will that policy change to open up licensing uh, so that uh, health practitioners can work beyond uh, their specialty, I think is a great response. Uh, I think that this drive that we've had to have a very efficient supply chain has a, another side to it, is that we're not overstocked when we get an event like this. And we, and we still don't know if there's going to be another way. I was encouraged by some of the other policy changes like allowing more telemedicine. Uh, that's a good aggressive way to get connections between practitioners and potential patients and get that into the reimbursement system. That's been long overdue. I know we've seen proposals to open up the uh, narrow network so that Patients have access to all the available beds and doctors that we maximize or minimize the pre-authorization and medical necessity reviews, um, that we go to the insurers and ask them to turn off their computer systems that are geared to payment denial and geared to stepping down the uh, level of reimbursement. These are called down coding. It's kind of an industry term. I don't know that most of our listeners know that, but there's a host of policy changes that we need to address. Are, are there any others out there and, and what would be the highest priority in the short run? And then what are some of the things we need to think about for the longer term to try to get beyond this crisis that we're in? Well, you certainly named a few that have been very well received by our members. You know, the ability to uh, have frontline caregivers practice at the top of their license. This is, of course, the scope of practice issue that's always politically controversial. Uh, that's very helpful, as is uh, Governor Whitmer's executive order last week that extended uh, medical liability protections to both uh, providers and uh, to facilities. We're also working on uh, product liability so that when you see a General Motors, for example, get into the production of ventilators, when you see a host of other companies around the state of Michigan converting their manufacturing capabilities to produce masks and other personal protective equipment, we need the, the product liability as well so that they're encouraged to continue that production. Uh, certainly the changes that private insurers have made related to prior authorization have been helpful. The other I would point to there uh, that, that is incredibly helpful is the data extraction requirements that uh, private insurers typically have for hospitals related to quality improvement programs. Uh, they have suspended that activity to allow the nurses that do nothing but data extraction to get away from that work and actually work on the front lines. I would say that the real focus for us at the MHA in terms of policy change and what the, the state and federal government can do to help in this crisis 
has been our focus on emergency funding relief. Because quite frankly, if we don't get that funding relief, there are going to be hospitals that can't make payroll in a week or two. There are hospitals whose very ability, uh, ability to maintain operations is going to be in jeopardy. Uh, these are the hospitals that, as we mentioned, that were financially uh, struggling even before all of this. And so to that point, uh, we were successful working with Governor Whitmer and with the uh, legislative leaders here in the state to get a $50 million emergency uh, funding package for healthcare providers. Uh, the majority of that funding will go directly to Michigan hospitals. Uh, we also were successful working with the American Hospital Association to have the, the CARES Act, which uh, was signed into law uh, just last week by President Trump. Uh, that includes about $117 billion in funding for America's hospitals. Uh, we're still working very aggressively to make sure that Michigan gets uh, our fair share and that uh, those funds make their way to Michigan hospitals as quickly as possible. But quite honestly, uh, those are only band-aids in what is going to be a long-term uh, recovery. And we understand at the congressional level, uh, there's already work that's begun on round four because the CARES Act was really the third major relief bill that Congress uh, sent to the president. Round four is already underway. Uh, similarly, we're already working on a next uh, effort here at the state level as well. So really, the funding is going to be key. Brian, that is uh, good to hear. It's kind of where we started the discussion on the Common Bridge today is, are all the component parts of our government and our health systems working together? And it it looks like it took a shock to the system, a mighty shock to the system, in order to get them to begin taking emergency action. I am encouraged by the new funding coming in. Uh, I am encouraged by the candor of looking at the underlying systemic issues that have made uh, responsiveness so troublesome. I know that we have phenomenal people that are engaged in our health system. It's a calling. It's people that have a high sense of mission that want to take care of sick and injured people, keep them healthy or restore them to health. We need to make sure that we are supporting them in every way possible. So as we wrap up today, beyond the social distancing, the hand washing, and perhaps the suggestion that we mask up before we go outside, what's the most important thing for citizens to know today about this particular virus? What do they need to be communicating to their congressional representatives, their governors, their president, their senators? That's a broad question, I know. Well, I'd answer it in two ways. The first is, you know, what can each and every Michigander do uh, on a day, daily basis. And it's a plea that we have repeated uh, multiple times since uh, COVID arrived here in the state of Michigan. And that is, understand that uh, we need to avoid going to a hospital unless absolutely necessary. Meaning, uh, the governor issued an executive order uh, that restricted hospital visitation for good reason because every person that shows up at a hospital that doesn't need to be there 
uh, they risk exposing our frontline caregivers to this virus. And once a frontline caregiver contracts the virus and is no longer able to show up to work every day and, and provide care, uh, that has very significant ramifications for all of us and for our system's ability uh, to provide care to those who truly need it. So that is something we all need to bear in mind. That becomes incredibly difficult when you think about people who want to be at the hospital to visit a loved one. Uh, we understand that, but that is critically important in, in this uh, situation. Secondly, what can we do in terms of our messaging to lawmakers? And we have a, a longstanding uh, saying here at the association, which is politics is not a spectator sport. Uh, every single one of us, regardless of where we live, what our job happens to be, uh, you name it, we have a role to play in politics. We can get involved and let our voice be heard. And to that end, I believe that this is a perfect opportunity to let our elected officials at the state and federal level know without a vibrant functioning hospital in our community, whether that's a rural community in the Upper Peninsula or whether that's an urban setting like Detroit, uh, we need to have a viable hospital and all that that entails in terms of the incredibly talented and hardworking people that work there the technology and equipment and supplies that are housed there. We need that facility, not only to get us through this crisis, but as you said earlier, to care for all of those other patients who have very serious and legitimate healthcare needs that have nothing to do with COVID-19. Uh, we really understand now more than ever how important Michigan hospitals are to the fabric of our society. Brian, I really appreciate you coming on the Common Bridge today. I hope that everyone takes these messages to heart. Stay at home, save a nurse. Unless you really have to be at the hospital, please don't go. That includes your doctor office as well. We are all in this together. Uh, nobody is immune from becoming a patient or having a loved one become a patient. And we all must demand good government and good, well-thought-out policy responses so that we are better able as a society to react next time. This has been The Common Bridge with our special guest, Chief Executive of the Michigan Health and Hospital Association, Brian Peters. I'm Rich Helpy. Thank you so much for listening. Brian, thank you again, and Godspeed in your work with our health system. Rich, thank you so much. All the best. You have been listening to Richard Helpy's Common Bridge podcast, recording and post-production provided by Stunt3 Multimedia. All rights are reserved by Richard Helpy. For more information, visit richardhelpy.com.